In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Ever wondered why, after hours of reading and highlighting, you still feel unprepared for that big test? Or why, shortly after a work training, you can't remember much of what was said and how to apply it? Or why you have trouble comprehending a difficult book? Whether you're a student studying for exams, an employee trying to learn the ropes at a new job, or someone who's into personal study, learning effectively is hugely important in increasing your capacity and knowledge. Unfortunately, most of what people do to learn simply doesn't work. Here to unlock the superior research-backed strategies that will help harness the potential of your brain is Daniel Willingham, professor of psychology and the author of Outsmart Your Brain. Today on the show, Daniel explains why the default way that our brain wants to learn doesn't work and how to approach learning by both reading and listening more effectively. We discuss how to get more out of your reading, including whether you should highlight, whether speed reading is effective, the optimal method for taking notes during a lecture, the best way to cement things into your memory, and much more. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash learn. All right, Daniel Willingham, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you are a professor of psychology who has published a book on learning better. It's called Outsmart Your Brain. And you start the book off by arguing that to learn how to learn better, you first need to understand the default way our brain wants to learn and why that's not effective. So how does our brain want to learn things and why doesn't that work? You know, even before you you start thinking about the default way your brain works, you have to recognize that learning is actually a multiple stage process. This is something a lot of people don't think about, but it's self-evident when it's explained. When you're learning something and you you fail to learn, the problem may not be in terms of getting things into memory. That's where people usually lay the blame. But it could be you were trying to learn something by reading and your reading wasn't very effective or you were trying to learn, someone was explaining something to you and you weren't, your listening wasn't very effective and so on. There, there are a bunch of little sub-steps to learning. So that's the first thing I always encourage people to do, especially people who say like, oh, I'm terrible at learning. Uh, what I point out is there may be a lot of it that you're doing pretty well, and then there's just one little piece that needs some tweaking. And so it may be easier to address than you think. But in terms of that stage of trying to get things into memory, the big mistake that people tend to make is they tend to do something that feels easy and that also feels in the moment like it's working well. So students, when they're studying do a lot of rereading of their notes and a lot of rereading of the textbook. And as they're doing that, the content becomes more and more familiar to them. It's the same feeling you get when you see a movie for the second time. You're like, yep, yep, I know all this. I've seen all this. Very familiar. And so it feels like you know it, but that's actually not the kind of knowing that the student is going to need for the test. They need to not only say like, yes, I've seen this before, they need to actually be able to explain it. So that's one example of a way that people approach learning tasks that feels easy and also feels in the moment like it's doing you some good, but is not really optimal. I like the analogy you give in the book, the way we often approach learning is sometimes how we approach push-ups. We know that if we want to get better at push-ups, we need to do more push-ups. But what we typically do is like, well, I'll do push-ups from my knees Right. And it feels like I'm doing push-ups and I'm getting stuff done and it's easy, but you're actually not going to get stronger just doing knee push-ups. Exactly. It's just as you say, like we, a lot of times we recognize in physical exercise, you need that challenge. And even at the time, like it feels hard, it's not going well, but you know, in the long run, this is the right thing to do. 
Same thing applies when you're trying to learn. You need to have the right kind of challenge in order for your brain to get exercised and to benefit. Okay, so learning is hard if you want to actually learn and know the information then be able to apply the information in a meaningful way. But our brain wants to do knee push-up versions of learning. Uh, So let's dig into how we can learn better and overcome our brain's natural tendency to want to do knee push-ups versions of learning. And a way, a big way a lot of people learn is through reading. So what's the lazy way our brain wants to approach reading to learn? So if you think about how you learn to read, you learn to read, I mean, most people learn to read in the very early grades of school, and you learn to read with material that is intended to be very easy to comprehend. And when you do leisure reading, it's also intended to be pretty easy to comprehend. Leisure reading, by definition, is reading that you choose to do. If it's very difficult, you're just going to drop the book. So it's usually in narrative form. The author is sort of coming to you to, to lead you along. The reading we do to learn is usually not organized that way. It's organized hierarchically rather than in story format. And you're, of course, reading for a different purpose. You're not reading for the, for the sake of sort of being entertained. You're reading new content that's probably challenging, and you're reading it for the purpose of learning. So the thing that your brain does is it falls into the same reading mode that you were in when you're reading a story. I'll sometimes ask my students who struggle with difficult reading, like, well, tell me what you do to read. Like, how do you begin? And they just look at me like it's a very, like, I'm, like I sit down and open the book. Like, what are you talking about? Right? And that's what you do when you're reading a story. There's no need to prepare. But when you're reading something difficult, you should prepare a little bit and deploy some strategies. Uh, okay, so what are some reading strategies that you can do to get more out of your reading to learn? Yeah, so the first thing you want to do in, in terms of preparation is think about what your goal is. There's research showing people really do read differently when they do this little preparation to think about what am I hoping to get out of this? Then the second thing you can do is look at the headings and subheadings of whatever it is that you're going to read. That'll give you some sense of what it's about. And then generate a few questions based on that quick skim that you're doing. And then as you're reading, so that's the preparation. This shouldn't take, you know, if you're reading a chapter, this should be less than five minutes. I mean, probably less than three minutes, really. It's not a big deal, but you're sort of setting yourself up in this way. The second thing you want to do is as you're reading, we all know it's hard to focus attention, especially when something is complicated. Just as your brain doesn't respond well to here, you have to remember this, your brain doesn't respond really to the command you give it. Now, I want you to understand what you're reading, and I want you to continue to pay attention. Your mind drifts. And so, instead of giving it the command, now listen, pay attention, give it a concrete task to do. You're much more likely to stay with it if you're trying to do something like answer a question. So, in that quick skim that you did, looking at the headings and subheadings, you're thinking about your goal, and then you're also thinking, here's some questions I expect to be answered by the time I've finished this chapter. Then as you're actually reading the chapter, you can think to yourself, okay, am I finding the answer to those questions? Those may turn out to be bad questions, so like, should I revise them? What's a better question? And what's the answer to that one? That'll help you stay on task, and especially it will help you sort of think about the deeper meaning. A lot of times when people read, they're kind of reading one sentence at a time, and they're not really coordinating the meaning of the different sentences and paragraphs to put it all together into a bigger picture. That's what answering those questions is going to help you do. As you were talking, this reminded me of Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book approach. He has mm-hmm. different types of reading. There's inspectional reading, where it's that where you're talking about. You look at the, the chapter, look at the headings, kind of get an overview of what it's like, and then you kind of get into the deeper analytical reading where you have the framework. With that inspectional reading, you've developed questions that you're going to have, and then you can dig into that analytical reading and then the synoptical reading where you try to figure out the, the main thesis and try to compare and contrast. 
There are lots of versions of this. So for school children, SQ3R may have been something that some of your listeners are familiar with. But whatever they are, most of the reading strategies have these two main elements where you do some sort of a preview to get a big picture idea. And then as you're reading, you've got something to keep you engaged. And it's usually bearing questions in mind and trying to find the answers to them. Something you highlight in the book is that highlighting, that's a typical approach people use when they're reading to learn. Highlighting doesn't work. What's going on there? So to be clear, highlighting is okay if you've got a lot of expertise in the topic. Mm-hmm. So if if you already, you know, when I'm reading cognitive psychology, for example, I, I will often highlight And it's fine because the main problem with highlighting is if you're new to the subject, you're probably not highlighting the right stuff. And one of the really clever experiments they did on this with college students, the researchers went to the college bookstore and they bought multiple copies of some textbooks in some big classes like Poli-Sci 101 and Economics 101. And they bought multiple copies of the textbook and then they, they were used copies and they just looked at what people had highlighted. And what they found was students were highlighting completely different things. So the, the original intent of the study was we're going to look at what students highlight and then we're going to ask the professor, are the students highlighting the right things? But they couldn't even do that because there was no consistency in what students highlighted. Actually, I take that back. The one consistency in that study was if a word was bold-faced, everybody highlighted it. <laughs> so they, they sort of doubled down on the, uh, on the emphasis the author had put in there. So, yeah, you don't want to highlight. And the alternative strategy is taking notes. Taking notes has a couple of advantages. One is that you can edit them later and you can go back and and as your understanding gets deeper, you can revise what you've taken notes on. The other thing is that notes are much better suited to answering those deep questions, thinking about those deep questions, because you can pull together things that were, you know, a couple of pages away And this often happens when there's something complicated. You know, the author is bringing multiple points of view and different types of evidence to something. And so you may want to relate something that was on page 75 to something that's on 78. And of course, that's easy to do when you're taking notes, but highlighting is very poorly suited to drawing those sorts of connections. So yeah, I do a lot of reading for my work. I read all the books to prep for the podcast and I highlight, I do highlight, I have my own little system where if something's really important, I'll put a star by it. But I think the thing that helps a lot that I do that that's beyond just highlighting is after I'm done with the book, I've got to create the outline for the conversation. And so I go through and I have to synthesize those highlights and that takes some time. And that's how I remember this stuff. I think it's that Mm -hmm. trying to craft the conversation for the podcast allows me to digest the, the information. And the other thing, Brett, that I would point out is that you have a lot of experience and a lot have developed, I'm imagining, a lot of expertise in figuring out from an unfamiliar text what is really going to be important, what's what's the main message here, what's going to be interesting to my listeners. It's a little bit like magazine fact checkers. Most of us are not very good at fact checking, right? That's why fake news proliferates on the internet. Fact checkers are really good at this and they've they've developed strategies through experience that make them so good at it. So you, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that a novice try to do what you do, because in general, experts do something different than what beginners are capable of doing. Another tactic people use when it comes to reading is speed reading, because they want to get a lot of information in. Is speed reading effective? Speed reading is skimming. There's been research on this for years and years and years, and virtually any task You can do it faster and not do it as accurately, or you can take a whole lot more time and do it more accurately. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about, you know, throwing clay pots or reading or driving or anything else. This is pervasive in psychology. It's called speed accuracy trade-off. And so that's what people are doing when they're speed reading, they're skimming. And I think you can use that as a strategy on and off, depending on the situation. So in my experience, if I get one of those like, airport pop nonfiction books, right? The business books where mm-hmm. everything's formatted for skimming. So you can read the headline and the bullet points. 
And then you can decide whether or not you want to dig deep into the anecdotal stories that they put in there. I think those books are great for that skimming approach. But then if it's like a really hard philosophical treatise, you can't do that. Right? I'm, like I just, right. I just got done reading Kierkegaard's unscientific postscript. You could not speed read that thing because you'd miss it. So I think you can, you got to be strategic about when you do the, the skimming. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And another function of skimming, sometimes you're looking at a book like you don't want the whole message. There's You're doing research on something and there's a particular nugget that you want and that you think is you're going to find in this book. And that's another time skimming would make a lot of sense. Okay, so let's do a recap here. The lazy way to approach reading for learning is to approach reading like you're you know, reading for pleasure on a Saturday afternoon where you just jump in and think you can just follow it like you're following a, a story. But when you're reading for learning, you need to do a little bit more prep work. You want to figure out like what you want to get out of the reading, maybe formulate some questions, look at the headings and the subheadings of the chapter you're about to read. You just got to engage with it more. But another way we learn is by listening. And here too, there's also a lazy way that we typically approach learning by listening. What does that look like? Yeah, it's very similar to what I was saying about reading, that you figure I'm listening like I can listen the way I always listen. But listening, usually when you're having a conversation, listening is not that demanding because one of the conversational conventions, it's sort of understood that if I'm talking with someone, first of all, there's usually not very much planning on the part of the person I'm talking to. They're sort of thinking of things as they come to mind. And if they do refer back to something that they mentioned 10 minutes ago, they'll usually remind me of it. So the demand that's placed on my working memory how much stuff I have to keep in mind at once, how much I have to juggle that stuff is pretty minimal. And again, most of the time when you're listening to conversation, it's pretty light. You're not trying to learn anything new. The same is true even in a movie. Again, like reading narrative, when you're watching a movie, it's designed to be entertaining and easy to digest. When you go to a presentation, when someone is trying to teach you something, it can feel like a movie. It feels like a like you may be in an audience, and so it feels like a performance. But it's very likely if you're there to learn something serious, the person who's speaking is not an expert in communication. This hasn't been carefully crafted the way a movie has been crafted. And it also doesn't have the characteristic of the person just talking off the top of their head. It is planned and organized, but it's not planned and organized in a way that's terribly effective for learning. And so, listening in these circumstances really takes a lot of work. Once again, just as with a textbook chapter or with a chapter that's meant to teach you something, there is an organization. That organization carries meaning. But in a presentation, the organization is frequently not very obvious. So it's organized hierarchically. There'll be maybe three to seven main points. And then under each of those main points, there's several types of evidence. There's a couple of examples and so on. And it's up to you to sort of figure out that organization. Why is the person talking about this now? Oh, this is supposed to help me understand this key conclusion. So listening is actually, when someone is trying to teach you something, listening is actually quite challenging. But the brain goes to that place of, I'm just listening. There's no, you know, what's hard about that? Okay, so what you need to do is as you're listening, figure out the hierarchy that the presenter is he has in his head, maybe he's not presenting it very well in a hierarchy, but there is a hierarchy going on. You got to figure that out. That's exactly the way I think of it. Yeah. It's like when you're this, and maybe your listeners have experienced this, when you're trying to teach something to, to a group and you've prepared a presentation, like it's obvious to you because you know this stuff, right? And so you've got this organization in your head, but it's very hard to communicate that organization. One of the things that makes a good speaker a good speaker is that they are sort of leading you along and doing things like saying, remember I said there were going to be three reasons this is true? Okay, now we're done with reason number two. Now we're going to move on to reason three. That kind of signposting when you're a speaker, lots of evidence indicating that really helps your listeners understand. But if you're listening to somebody who's not doing that, it's kind of up to you to 
make the inferences that are going to help you understand the organization. And so it sounds like when you're asking questions in a lecture setting, the most useful questions are going to be clarifications about the hierarchy, right? So maybe you're trying to figure out the presenter's hierarchy that he's got in his head. Maybe something's not translating. So you could ask a clarifying question. Right, right. Yeah. So one thing that people do during lecture settings to learn is take notes. But again, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lazy way our brain wants to take notes when we're listening to a lecture. What is that typical approach? Yeah, the lazy way is just writing down word for word snippets of what the speaker has said. Because you sort of figure, you know, I'm getting their exact words and that's got to be good, right? But what this does is it, it really saves you having to listen deeply and process what they're saying. Because, I mean, we all know if you're an adept typist, you can essentially turn into someone taking dictation and you're really not thinking deeply about what the meaning is of what you're writing down. You're just writing down what appear to you to be key phrases. And it's tempting to go into that mode because when you're listening and you're trying to take notes at the same time, that's very difficult. You're really in, and and we've all felt it, when you're taking notes, you usually feel like you're in mental overload and you can't really keep up. And so ideally what you would do is you would listen, think carefully, and then paraphrase what's being said. Write it down in your own words. Write down your own understanding. That's going to lead to much better notes, but that's much more demanding than just writing down what the speaker said. Okay. And that's a hard skill to develop. It is. It is. Yeah. So it's just with practice, you have to do it. And I think one of the bits of advice you give is when you go into a lecture, you have to decide what's your strategy going to be for this lecture. Is it going to be more I'm just going to get facts down because maybe there's a class where it's very fact-based and that's important to get all as many facts as possible, but then the class might be more you making connections and that would require you to think more about what you write instead of trying to get everything down. Absolutely. Yeah. Think about what your goal is. If you're there, you know, you're at a training or something, you know, like I'm here to learn this specific skill and that should really guide how you're thinking about the content and the notes that you take. We've all also found ourselves at meetings where you're asking yourself, why am I here? Why am I supposed to listen to this presentation? Like here's an accounting guy and I'm in operations, but it's worth thinking about that. Like what And it's actually worth asking in advance, like, what what am I bringing to the table here? What do you want me to take back to my group? And then think about note-taking through that lens. It could be like a lot of what this person is saying is not relevant, but you really better be alert because at minute 22, he's going to talk about stuff that does bear on your group and you want to be there and be present for it and be ready to take good notes on it. Uh, If someone's taken like a study skills class, one thing you've probably encountered with note-taking is these different note-taking systems that are out there. And you say, actually, they're probably not that useful. I mean, they're okay. So what the research literature on this looks like is, in the end, not that helpful because there are lots of these different systems and they typically compare use of the system like you you know you instruct students in how to take notes with the Cornell system or whatever it is and then the comparison group is students who have received no instruction in note taking at all and what you consistently find is some instruction is better than no instruction at all and i think that what the the comparison i'd like to see is just a few words to students about how to help them be mindful about how to take good notes. My concern with systems like the Cornell system and so on is they're very demanding of attention. It gives you one more thing to think about. Okay, now, so this is a summary. Now, in, in, in the system, yeah. I'm supposed to write those at the bottom of the page or whatever. So, I, you know, I, I think you, you know, there's, a, there's a, a steep learning curve. And I think you, of course, people can learn it. But I think you probably get more bang from your buck just being thoughtful about what notes are for and having a few tricks up your sleeves about how to how to take good ones. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day, wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts 
starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Okay, so the easy way or the lazy way to listen when you're learning is to listen to a lecture like you're listening to a conversation with a friend. Instead, what you're saying is we got to do, you got to think about the organization of what the person or the lecturer is trying to say and like try to figure out how things fit together. And then also the lazy way to take notes is to just jot everything down verbatim. And a better way is to actually think about what's being said and paraphrase what's being said in your own words. And yeah, like you said, you, you don't recommend like a specific note-taking system, but there's a few tactics you recommend to make note-taking more effective or more efficient. Uh, you recommend developing a shorthand system for your notes. So abbreviations you're going to use in all your note-taking. So it can allow you to focus on what's being said and not so much on like what you're writing. You just use that shorthand. Here's a common debate. What does the research say about typing your notes on your computer versus handwriting them? Is one method better than the other? 
Yeah, very complicated topic because it's a little, I mean, it's a little bit like trying to figure out whether smoking causes cancer. It seems straightforward at first, but the, you know, the straightforward thing to do is just look at students who handwrite their notes, look at students who type their notes, and then see who's, you know, doing better on tests. But of course, that's going to be correlational evidence. And so you don't know whether students who are just good students prefer one method or another. So that's not wholly satisfactory. The other thing you can do is you can make people type notes or handwrite notes, but then I maybe am doing something I don't really want to do, and that's that's kind of messing things up. So the data are kind of squishy right now. The dominating factor and what I end up recommending in the book is that I think the potential for distraction if you're typing notes kind of overwhelms everything. If you're on a laptop, you have access to the internet. Most students are not able to resist checking, you know, email, checking social media, whatever, doing other things during moments that they perceive to be a little bit boring or something. And that's why I went to a no devices policy in my classes about seven years ago. And I'll, I'll say things have changed a little bit. When I first instituted this policy, my students were initially kind of angry <laughs> at me, wanted to hurt me. But then by the end of the semester, they were saying, okay, actually, I, I kind of see, I, I see why you did this. I get it. More recently, my students have, they get it immediately. And in fact, a few have said to me, you know what, like I'm on my phone all the time. And so having someone in a position of authority say to me, you may not be on your phone for the next 75 minutes. I actually kind of welcome that. So we've taken our lecture notes, we've taken notes while reading, but our note taking doesn't stop there. And you argue that you have to organize those notes. So what does a good organizational process look like? I think what you wanted, this goes back to what we were talking about before. The presentation that you're, whether it was a college lecture or, or something else, the presentation that you were present for was almost certainly organized hierarchically. And so you want to go back and recover that organization. And the strategy I recommend is very simple. When you're in a lecture, try to put a star, as I think you said you do when you read, put a star next to major points. And this usually, the speaker is going to make this clear. You can tell from their body language. You can tell from they're probably going to repeat it. It's the kind of thing that would be on a slide. So you put a star next to it. And then later, when you're at home, look and see each point that's in your notes. Think about which of the main points of the lecture it relates to and consider how it relates and that, that's how you can recover this hierarchical organization. The other thing that this process, so one thing this is really good for is to make sure that you're understanding. It's also very good for memory. Thinking about meaning is very helpful for memory, and this is really going to get you thinking deeply about meaning. And will also reveal to you if there are any holes in your notes. So you may realize, like, oh, I'm pretty sure he said there were going to be three reasons that thus and so is true. I've only got two of them. And that alerts you. I need to go back and you know, talk to the speaker or whoever and, and see if I can find out what that third missing piece is. The strategy I used when I was in law school, law school, I really learned how to study. I learned how to read. I learned how to listen. I learned how to synthesize notes. So I go to my lecture. You have to do your reading before the lecture listen to the lecture, take notes. And then immediately after the class, I would go to my study cubby in the library. And then I would put those notes into my outline. I'd be creating an outline as the semester went on. And Mm -hmm. that outline creation was really how I learned the material. And like, as you said, when you create that outline, when I was creating that outline, it helped you synthesize information, see how things connect, but then it also allowed you to see where you had holes in your knowledge. And so you'd be like, well, I'm missing something in this point here, this element of this crime. I need to learn more about that and go talk to the professor. Absolutely. And I'll say that when when students come to me saying, like, I'm really frustrated, I'm putting a lot of work in, I can't figure out what's going wrong, I would say, okay, like, let's look at your notes, let's talk about what you're doing, and so on. When they're studying for tests, uh, going back to uh, earlier in the conversation, almost always their strategy, I was reading over my notes, we've gone over why that isn't effective. And so one of the things I encourage them to do is do this note reorganization, just as you've described, Brett, the, the 
strategy you use very similar to what I was describing. And what my students say is they come back later in the semester and they say, you know, I did that note reorganization thing and I found like I almost didn't need to study for the tests because this is again goes back to, you know, you don't need to be trying to learn something for something to get into memory. The process of doing that deep thinking and organization is so good for memory that when the test came around, they found like they were already 80% of the way there. Yeah. So creating your own study guide, creating your own outline is the plyometric version of push-ups, right? It's where you explode off the ground. Exactly. It's going to, yeah. it's going to pay off in the end. Yeah. I love that. So Let's talk about studying again. So I think we talked about if you want to study for a test, one thing to do is you're studying throughout the semester or throughout the whatever it is you're doing, yeah. uh, putting together your own outline. But then uh, you also argue that you don't just want to review your outline when you're actually studying for that exam or whatever it is. You need to test yourself. So walk us through the research about testing yourself to prepare for a test. Yeah, I mean, this is there are a couple of things that work here. One is... Probing memory is actually one of the really best ways, if not the very best way, to cement information that's kind of in memory but is fragile. So the way the research on this goes, this is called retrieval practice. It's also called the testing effect, if anybody wants to uh, look it up for more information. So the way these experiments typically work is you've got two groups of people. Everybody has some exposure to some new information. They read something or they watch a video or something. Then one group has a second session a few days later where they get the chapter again and reread it, or they rewatch the video. They know that a test is coming up, so they're, they're trying to study. The second group, their second session is not re-exposure to the content. They actually take a quiz on the content, and they get immediate feedback about what they got right and what they got wrong. And then a few days after that, both groups take a test. So this is a new test. Nobody's seen the questions before. So it's different questions than the the group that took a test in session two. It's different questions for them. And what you find is usually about a 10 or 15% advantage for the people who took a test or a quiz in that second session compared to people who studied a second time. So there are different theories about what's going on in memory, but the phenomenon is not debated at all. It's been shown to work with people of all ages and all sorts of different content. There's something about going into memory, rummaging around looking for something that is really effective in cementing that information in. I want to emphasize, like you you actually get the effect even if you don't get immediate feedback, but it works much better if you do get that immediate feedback. Okay, so flashcards could be a useful tool there. Flashcards are by far the easiest way to organize it. Yeah. So, and the other aspect of this, I want to sort of go back to what we were talking about earlier. The, you know, the comparison is reading over your notes, right? And one, one of the things we emphasize reading over your notes, you're not necessarily thinking very deeply about it. You can sort of skim over. It's becoming more and more familiar. But again, it's going to feel like things are going great. I'm really effective. And that's not what's going to happen with flashcards. With flashcards, you're sort of confronting yourself with whether or not you actually know the content. So you're really getting two things from flashcards. One, you're getting this memory boost that I described, but you're also testing yourself and providing yourself with a chance to evaluate, how's this going? Do I know this content yet or not? And that's the type of sort of self-testing to prove to yourself whether or not you know it, that's going to be much more effective. Uh, The other thing I did when I was in law school is I would take practice exams, you know, the weeks leading up to the final exam. You have three hours to take an exam. I would actually, like on a Saturday, would three hours to do a practice test. And I found that to be the most useful because those tests, like oftentimes they were closed book. And so I had to like know, if I didn't know the stuff, then I couldn't answer the essay question. And the process of, as you said, confronting what you don't know and like working to try to retrieve it, that's how that stuff got cemented in my head. The only, and and I agree with you, it has those advantages. The things that listeners should think about with practice tests, the dangers of practice tests, One is that the practice test you have may not be really representative of what the actual test is going to be. You want to be really convinced it is. And when people look to things like Quizlet, I mean, 
I've looked at the Quizlet stuff that's available for my courses. It's frequently out of date. Frequently, some of it is just wrong. So you do want to be careful about sources that you're finding on the internet that are supposed to help with a particular course. And the other thing to keep in mind is that when you've got a practice test, you are just looking at a subset of the information that you're supposed to know. So it might be, you know, 40 items or something. And, you know, you could generate 400 items. And so it could be that you kind of got lucky and that the 40 items that on the practice test were ones that you happen to know and you'll end up with a little bit of an overestimate. So I think practice tests are great, especially for, as you said, sort of giving you a sense in realistic testing conditions, how am I doing? And they're also useful if you get them from the instructor to get a sense of what type of questions should I expect. But I think in terms of evaluating, is my knowledge really complete? Test yourself on your entire study guide and let that be your guide as to whether or not you're really ready. And I can see this being applicable into the working world. Let's say you have to give a presentation to make a pitch and there's going to be questions and answers. You can work with your colleagues to develop potential questions and answers. That's going to be your study guide. And and you just see if you can answer them without looking at your notes. That's how you can apply this. to. I'm trying to move away from just academics, but to the, of to the working world. Yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you, the way I think about this is knowing your subject matter, whatever whatever your work is, knowing about the content of day-to-day what happens in your office and the, the kinds of problems that you concern you with, that is going to help you. And so having more of that committed to memory is going to help. So you can apply this principle of testing yourself, not just to very formal situations where I sit down and I'm doing nothing else. You can probe memory at any time. So like you can hang up the phone with somebody and you've got you've taken some notes over the course of this conversation with information that you think you need to hold on to. You can quiz yourself on the spot and say, okay, so what did this person just say? She just told me how to solve this problem. What is it that she said? And you've got it written down, but you still feel like that would be a good thing for me to just have committed to memory. You can quiz yourself at any time, and it takes just seconds. Most people have a very hard time at the office like setting aside time to devote to learning. So just do little bits and pieces and sort of work that into your daily workflow. Okay, and so do practice exams, practice questions, but you also say, I think we've already talked about this, don't just reread your notes because that's just going to lead to overconfidence because you're like, oh, this is familiar. I mean, you're going to confuse familiarity with actually knowing the material. Uh, Absolutely. Really key takeaway. Well, a lot of learning requires learning from your mistakes, but looking at your mistakes can be very unpleasant. Um, No one likes to do that. So any advice on overcoming the reluctance to focus on our mistakes? This is, uh, I think everybody struggles with this. And this is something like you don't grow out of this. <laughs> I mean, this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm in the academic world. I mean, professors, you know, we submit articles to uh, professional journals and you get reviews from, you know, expert colleagues and people will get reviews and not read them. Like they can't, they, you know, they just can't face it because, you know, it's something you've worked on all these years and the reviews can be harsh. Most people do develop tricks, and a lot of what they do is sort of taking the bad news in snippets. So telling yourself, okay, you know what, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm not going to do anything about this. I'm just going to look at it, and that's it. That's all I have to do today is just look at it as a way of sort of creeping up on the bad feeling that that getting this negative feedback is going to entail. And then usually once you can get yourself to kind of break the ice, you realize, okay, it's not as bad as I thought. So like the next step is going to be, I'm going to record everything that was wrong. Then the next step is I'm going to think about how to respond to it and so on. So that's that's a very common strategy that I, I think is effective for a lot of people is breaking it down into pieces. But I do want to emphasize that you're right. I mean, the the way we learn is through feedback and responding to feedback. Yeah, you, you have in the book says going over exam mistakes or just mistakes in your learning may make you feel dumb. And you are going to feel dumb, but you're actually doing what smart people do. It's true. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the people who people who make the fastest prog- you know, progress, and it's so obvious when you spell it out, the people who make the fastest progress, they're eager to get the feedback, right? They don't want to hear so much about what they're doing right. They've already got that. They want to know what they're doing wrong. 
And, you know, they want you to help them brainstorm ways of fixing it, new things they can try. So learning also requires that you manage your time. You have to make time for learning. But you argue instead of planning your learning by task, like I got to learn X chapter or I need to write X essay, you recommend planning your learning by time. So what does that look like? It really, yeah, it really is about making time for learning because, I mean, this is very common with students. They'll come home, you know, at the end of classes and they'll say, okay, so what do I have to do, you know, in the next couple of days? Do I have reading to do? Do I have whatever? And there are two problems with this. One is they may conclude, well, nothing is that urgent. And so they just won't do anything that day. So they're not really getting ahead of the game, which in calmer moments, they would probably recognize, oh, it's probably a good idea to do at least a little something every day. And then there's the planning fallacy, which is familiar to most people. The planning fallacy is just that people consistently underestimate how long it's going to take to get something done. And especially as the project gets more complicated, that becomes more and more true. There seems to be several reasons for it. One of the most important is that you don't anticipate that something is actually likely to go wrong, even if it's a really weird thing. There are lots of weird things that could happen that would interrupt your progress. So we all tend to underestimate how long things will take. And so if you say, oh, I've got a test on Friday, but it's Tuesday, so I don't really need to start studying now, you may be counting on you know, have, being able to get it done in a certain number of hours, and, and that's really a bad estimate. So instead, you want to plan by time and sort of say to yourself, every day from you know, 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock or whatever it is, that's my work time. And so the question is not whether or not to work. The question is, what am I working on during that block of time? I think that's even more important if you're in the working world. If you feel like there's you know, something, I want to learn how to code, or I've got, I want to acquire a new skill, or I want to learn about a new subject, or I just want to familiarize myself with aspects of, you know, I work at a big company, there are aspects of this organization that I don't know as much about as probably would be good. That's going to get shoved aside. There's no time limit on that uh, of, of when you need to learn it. Everyone is sort of frantically you know, bouncing from email to phone call. And so the learning is just never going to happen. And so you need to set aside time instead of telling yourself, you know, I'm going to learn about, uh, you know, what's happening when people fulfill orders or whatever it is that I think would be useful for me to know. You say, you know, every day, Mondays from, even if it's 9.15 to 9.30 or whatever it is, I'm going to protect that time on my schedule. And that's my learning time. And then you're uh, figuring out what you want to learn during that time. Right. So you, you guys block out your learning time, then create an agenda for your learning schedule before exactly. you start. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that plays a role in our ability to learn is our self-confidence or how we think of ourselves as a learner. What role does that play? What does the research say? The most important thing about that is it, it has, a, has an impact on your resilience, so if you see yourself as someone who learns, I, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I, I tend to have success at this. When you have a setback, when you find something is really hard or when you've tried really hard and thought you were successful and then the evidence come back, no, actually, that didn't go well at all. You thought you learned that and you didn't. If you have this self-image of yourself as I'm someone who usually succeeds at learning tasks, you're not going to give up. If, on the other hand, you know, because you'll think like, oh, well, that, that's strange, that didn't work, I must not have worked hard enough, or I had the wrong materials or something, like you'll, you'll come up with some attribution other than, I just suck at learning. And so someone who has a bad self-image of themselves as a learner, doesn't see themselves as a learner, they're not very resilient as learners, because when they fail, they figure, yep, this is more evidence of what I already thought was true, which is that I'm not very good at this. And then likewise, they may not undertake learning tasks because they think this is not the kind of thing that I do very well. And so there's really no reason for me to try. Well, any advice for those adults who have that negative self-image? Maybe they developed it during high school or college where they just kind of realize, well, I'm not a good learner. I'm not a good reader. I've seen that a lot when I you know, challenge people or invite or encourage people like, Hey, you should read this really cool book, you know, philosophy treatise by Plato. And they're like, Oh, I could never do that. I just don't understand. How can you overcome that negative self-image? 
The first thing I would point out is that a lot of times these self-images are developed very young, surprisingly young. When I first got interested in education, I started just observing classrooms. And I was really astonished when I was sitting in like first and second grade classrooms. And I felt like I could already see the children who had already given up on school, who had already concluded this is a place where I don't succeed. This is a place where I just feel shame. And teachers were telling me, like, you see it in first and second grade, like we see it in, in kindergartners. And so the first thing I would invite people to consider is like, you know, you were a really different, you know, at the time this self-image formed, you were a really different person. And it's possible too that, you know, that you didn't have a very good teacher, but you nevertheless blamed yourself for this problem. The second thing I would point out is that everybody can learn. This is, you know, part of what it means to be human. And it could be that when you were in school, you were making comparisons that weren't very helpful. Like maybe your good friend was, you know, really good at reading or whatever it was, and you were comparing yourself to your friend. That kind of comparison is really not helpful. The only comparison that really matters is comparing yourself to yourself, you know, and, and thinking about, am I making progress? Am I moving forward? And the final thing I would point out is, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, it could be that you're actually already really good at a lot of the sub-steps of learning, and then there's just one thing that's troubling you. And so, a little analysis, a little self-analysis of how do I go about learning and what do I need to tweak? You may find like, yeah, you've struggled in the past, but it was for a relatively minor reason. And with a few adjustments, you're going to make progress a lot faster than you have been. Yeah, it's good. And you also encourage people who have that negative self-image about learning is reminding yourself that you have learned stuff outside of school. Maybe there's something about the school setting that puts you off from learning, but you've you've learned stuff. You learn how to navigate the world. So it, it's not out of the realm of possibility for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Daniel, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? DanielWellingham.com is my website. It is... Uh, uh, infrequently maintained, I admit, but I uh, everything I've written actually to which I own the copyright is available free for download on there. So there are a number of articles about learning that people can see there. I'm also on TikTok now, Daniel underscore Willingham, and I'm on Twitter at DT Willingham. Fantastic. Well, Daniel Willingham, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Daniel Willingham. He's the author of the book, Outsmart Your Brain. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, danielwillingham.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash learn. We can find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. 